Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad. The name of this podcast is changing to Product Mastery Now to better reflect our purpose of helping product managers become product masters, gaining practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products your customers love. I've announced the name change for a few months now, and it is still happening. Just want you to know. Now, Jobs to be Done is a valuable tool for product managers and innovators, and there are different thoughts on how to actually put it into optimal practice. Our guest, Jay Haynes, is helping that problem by creating the first and only Jobs to be Done software for product people, marketing, sales teams, and others. He founded Thrive, which is spelled T-H-R-V, to make that happen, to bring that software into existence. Jay also has three decades of innovation experience, having helped companies like Microsoft, Dropbox, eBay, Twitter, American Express, Oracle, Target, and others. Now, before we talk to Jay, you'll find all the details of our discussions, along with the one-page action guide to help you put these concepts into action and remember the jobs to be done framework that he's going to share with us at theeverydayinnovator.com slash three. Three, three. Check it out. It's an easy way to get as much as you can from this discussion. Let's talk with Jay. Jay, thank you so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about this. Uh, you are discussing a tool that is one of my most favorites. It, it is a tool that, without knowing what the name of this thing was, that encompasses a lot of how I approach product work. And it is called Jobs to be Done. Can you tell us how what that tool is, kind of how you approach it? Yeah, that's great. It's a it's basically a theory and a method to build great products. And a lot of people have said similar stuff in similar ways, but today, you know, there's a big community that refers to it as jobs to be done. A lot of that is thanks to Clay Christensen, you know, of the Harvard Business School, and he put it the core idea pretty succinctly, which is that customers are actually not buying products, they are hiring products to get a job done. So this is just a, the basics of it, and it's the core idea. So it's really that leads to a whole set of tools that product teams can use to launch great products. And that's what we all really want to do is launch great products that customers love and that makes a difference in their lives. So it, the one way to think about it is that a job to be done is a goal a customer needs to achieve. And that's simply it. And the beauty is that a goal is independent of any products. And that's, I think, sometimes the hardest thing for people to get their head around. You know, no one wants, you know, iPods or cassettes or CDs, for example, right? We all are looking to create a mood with music. And so jobs, whether they're in consumer markets, like trying to create a mood with music or get to a destination on time, or parents who need to get a baby to sleep through the night, or in medical markets, even if you're a cardiovascular surgeon, you know, all the products you're using are really trying to help restore artery blood flow. And if you're a CFO, no matter what, you know, tools you're using, whether it's a spreadsheet or sophisticated financial applications, you know, the job you're trying to get done is optimize cash flow. So no matter what the market is, your customer has a goal that is stable and independent of any products. And that's where jobs to be done is really, really useful. Mm -hmm. What I love about this approach, when we look at innovation and with my, you know, I coach companies and then have my university courses, students often come into the courses wanting to rush into the solution. And my background is engineering. I'm wired the same way. That's right. You know, see what might look like a problem 
here's a going to be a cool, elegant solution for it, right? And I love jobs to be done because it helps us to remember to back up. And we're trying to actually satisfy a customer's unmet need and not just provide something that we might think is cool for them. Yeah, that's great. I mean, we sometimes joke that our competitive advantage is we have no ideas. <laughs> and the reason we say that is it is, you're exactly right. It's human to want to build stuff. It's just, you know, it's how we evolved and, and it's fun. Coming up with ideas is really, really fun. And, you know, we all use technology and there's lots of new technologies emerging. There's new ideas. So those are, it's just really the fun part. But what's interesting is if you look at innovation, most new ideas fail just by a long shot. You know, even if you just look at venture as a proxy for innovation, almost all venture-backed companies fail. And in fact, venture as an asset class would be terrible if you didn't have the occasional 10x and 100x returns of you know Google or Amazon or whoever. So that's actually part of the thing that Jobs to be Done helps you solve is don't fail as much. And I know that like fail fast became kind of a mantra within the venture community, but how about failing less all overall? And that means that rather than starting with ideas, which you have no way to really judge if the idea is useful or not, why not start with the customer's unmet needs and the problem that your customers have? And then coming up ideas with ideas that are valuable is actually much better. If you really understand what those unmet needs are, it's faster and more efficient to come up with ideas that might actually be valuable. <laughs> so, you know, I think it's, a, it's definitely a different approach, but hopefully, you know, very valuable for product teams. Yeah. And so that's really the problem it helps us with is uh, fail less, right? Respond more directly to the customer, be more successful overall. I would love for you to, you to take us through the specifics, the easy for me to say today, the specifics of this. Kind of where do we get started? What do we do? What, what does that process look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So everything starts with the customer and that's really the key. And that's, that's pretty common today. You know, companies really want to be customer focused. You hear that all, all the time. And that makes sense because customers generate all your revenue and profitability without customers <laughs> you won't succeed so so what is a customer who are your customers and it's really interesting when we work with teams and we always ask this first like who is your customer and it's amazing how often teams disagree on who their customer is and so the traditional way and companies use personas a lot to define their customers and the personas aren't bad but they can lead you astray so you might create two personas you know one who's male or female older or younger rural or urban etc and and you might tell a story about that person and that's that can be useful. And in B2B markets, you might do this too. You might have personas about big companies or large companies or companies in consumer packaged goods or financial services markets or whatever. So the pro here's what happens with the problems with personas is it leads you away from the core customer who benefits from getting the job done. And what we mean by that is that every market really is someone who benefits from getting a job done and the job they're trying to get done. <laughs> so is it consumers trying to get to a destination on time? Is it cardiovascular surgeons trying to restore artery blood flow, et cetera? And so if you start to group your customers, rather than personas, you should group them into what we call job beneficiaries, because that's the key person who's trying to get the job done, who benefits from getting the job done. And then there's also job executors. And job executors can be people who are helping the beneficiary get the job done. And then, of course, in a lot of markets, there's purchase decision makers who make the purchase or decide. So let's take a good example of homeowners and the thermostat market. So the thermostat market for decades 
if you were a thermostat manufacturer, you sold to contractors. So contractors seemed like your customers. So they generated all of your revenue. And, you know, if you were a homeowner, you hired a contractor and they stuck some terrible thermostat that you didn't like on your home and you couldn't figure out how to use it. And then along came a company called Nest. And what did Nest do? Well, the first thing is they redefined the customer they were going to target. They said, we're not targeting, we're not even going to sell to contractors. We're going to sell directly to the homeowners. So jobs theory helps explain why that was a very smart thing to do. Because the core customer in that market is the homeowner who's trying to achieve comfort. No one wants a thermostat. (laughs) They want to achieve comfort in their home. That's the job. And this happens in all markets. Even Apple famously did this. You know, Steve Jobs used to say that he never wanted to target IT managers. I think he referred to them as orifices or something. He had some interesting way of describing them. And remember, that was pretty crazy back in the early days of the computer when, you know, you would go to your IT department and your business would buy you a personal computer. No one sold a personal computer to consumers. I mean, now it's it's obviously the way the market works, but back then it was very, very odd. But it made sense that that's the way the market was going to go because the customer is the job beneficiary. It's the person who benefits from getting the job done. So that's where we always start. Who is the customer? That's the first thing is to get that right. Let me just explore that a little bit more with you. So th- these job beneficiaries are groups of kind of customer segments in that chain. So if we go back to the thermostat, the contractor, if, if the contractor is the one installing it, the contractor has some needs, right? That they, they want to do the work quickly. They want to make sure that when they leave that it's done, they don't have to come back. They don't get returned calls for this. And I've always been a big fan if we are in that kind of B2B relationship that you know we're distributing to contractors in this case, that we still want to understand how our end customer, the, the user of this device, actually does use it and what's important to them so that we can kind of build through that channel so to be meeting their needs too. So am I correct in understanding that this, this job beneficiary thing is we can, certainly in B2B we do, we have multiple groups involved that all may have different needs related to a product. That's right. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we do a lot of work in B2B markets and a lot of times what the job executors are doing different from the job beneficiaries is what are called consumption jobs. And Rita McGrath of MIT, you know, talks about this a lot. She kind of pioneered this idea of a consumption job. And the way that we distinguish between consumption and function is that can a functional job is a goal your customer, the job beneficiary is trying to achieve. So if you're, you know, a homeowner, you're trying to achieve comfort. If you're a contractor, you're helping with consumption jobs that are very, very important, like installing a thermostat, learning to use it, maintaining it, you know, et cetera. And all of those consumption jobs are extremely important because if you can't install a Nest thermostat, you know, who cares? It's not going to, it's not going to help you achieve comfort in your home. And remember, you may remember Nest included a very nicely Apple design looking kind of screwdriver in the first one. So they even provided you the screwdriver to help you get the consumption job done. And then eventually they did, you can go into Nest and you could hire a contractor to install it for you. So those jobs are incredibly important. And in B2B markets, that's true too. So IT managers are a great example of this. So if you're an employee at a company, you know, if you're in the finance department, your job might be the job to be done is to optimize cash flow, right? But your IT manager, you know, back in the day, I think you and I are old enough to remember this, right? You had to get permission from your IT manager and you had to get a license to the, you know, Excel or Office or and you had to get logged into the network and you know, it was the IT manager controlled your access to everything. And those are all consumption jobs. 
And those are important, right? Accessing data, installing the software, but no one wakes up in the morning and says, I need to install software or I need to, you know, learn how to use something, right? You wake up in the morning, try to achieve these goals and those consumption jobs are critically important. And it's interesting if you look at B2B markets, what happened with SaaS? Like why did SaaS just take over, you know, enterprise applications. Well, it was because it got rid of the job executor. You don't need an IT manager to use Salesforce or modern ERP systems because you just get a login and there's no need to install or set up. And so all those consumption jobs became much easier to do. And we see that in markets again and again and again, especially in B2B markets. And we'll tell companies, if you're targeting the job executor today, Okay, that might be good for your 2021 growth, but 2022 and probably by 2025, somebody's going to figure out how to get rid of that job executor, whether it's the contractor for the homeowner or whether it's the IT manager, you better start focusing on the job beneficiary because that's the true market. The, the market, the thing that's stable over time is a real human, you know, some person who has a goal to achieve, which we now call that a job to be done. Right. Even if you're working through these consumption providers, like distributors that are are sending your thermostats out to contractors, it's the actual end user that that is the reason why they're buying that these things exist in the first place, right? So that's who we need to meet needs for. And as you said, you often find when you work with organizations, uh, misunderstanding about who the customer actually is. Having this discussion is really important about who are we actually serving and who else is involved in that process. And I think that's super important. And that's why we see personas all the time because people like to use personas and it makes sense. You're, you're talking about a real human that you can visualize, but you don't want to limit yourself to one persona because you might miss out on all the other beneficiaries in the market. So it's really important to think job beneficiary, job beneficiary, job beneficiary. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. So we start with the customer, have a clear understanding of who our customer actually is. Where do we go next in jobs to be done? Yeah, then to the market. And obviously, markets rule. I mean, if you're if you're a great entrepreneur in a terrible market or you're a mediocre entrepreneur in an awesome market, you know, Choose being in an awesome market. One of my favorite quotes about this was, you know, Sequoia, the famous venture capital firm, initially invested in Apple and Steve Jobs. And people thought they were investing in this like genius guy who was this crazy, smelly hippie. And, you know, it was all the contrarian kind of memes about California and Silicon Valley in the early days. But what Sequoia says is they were like, they said it was a huge market. Computers cost $25,000 to $250,000. And Steve Jobs came in and said, 
I built this thing, it cost $2,500. They were like, that's a huge market. We're investing in that. And so we, we think about this all the time because the market you're in is the most important decision you can make as a product team. If you're in a product team and you haven't thought about really what the market is and essentially what the customer's job is, you've made a, a critical mistake. And I'll give you a great example. In 2005 or six, Apple had sold $30 billion of iPods. So that seems like a big market, even for a company the size of Microsoft. And they did what is very traditional. They defined the market based on the product. So if you were to use traditional market definition and sizing equations, the iPod market, well, they sold $150 iPods to uh, 200 million customers, <laughs> right? That's a $30 billion market, large by any standards. And yet today, the iPod market is literally zero. So, so what happened? Did the market change? Well, no, this is where jobs theory can be really helpful. The market isn't for iPods, it's to create a mood with music. And this, this is, again, you know, goes back to the 1960s and Professor Theodore Levitt at the Harvard Business School, who was, you know, he was famous for saying customers don't want a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole. <laughs> and that makes sense in any market. If you're thinking about your product, you should use that phrase and redefine it. So in the iPod market, so the supposed iPod market, consumers don't want cassettes or CDs or iPods. They want to create a mood with music. And I'm old enough, you know, I don't, I owned eight track tapes. So I, I've gone through so many different, you know, platforms. I didn't own reel to reel. I'm not that old, but, but, you know, we've all been there. And so why did we switch? Well, we switched because some product comes along that gets the job done faster and more accurately. And I love the Zune example because Microsoft lost a ton of money on that. They, comp they competed a, a competitor that worked well. It ironically even had a feature called podcasts. I don't know if you remember that, but the Zune had a podcasting feature before the iPod did. And they thought that was going to be you know, very innovative, but it clearly didn't satisfy any unmet needs in the market. Whereas right when they launched the Zune, a small company called Pandora launched with an entirely different platform to satisfy the needs in creating... Uh, mood with music entirely differently. And Pandora was signing up 90,000 users per day. So, you know, by any consumer product metric, that's an enormous success. And so why was that? Well, the answer was there's no such thing as an iPod market. There are no product-based markets. There's markets to get jobs done. And Pandora clearly satisfied, you know, unmet needs in the market. Yeah, it's really good. There's another job in there that I experienced, you know, that very first iPod that came out. The, the sort of Steve Jobs on stage, you know, doing the, you know, thousand songs in your pocket thing. That was really compelling. And so a lot of people jumped in and bought iPods. And yet they had solved the key problem that many of us had with our previous MP3 players, right? So there were all these MP3 players in the marketplace. It still wasn't trivial to get music onto your MP3 player, even the iPod. And it was what, like six months later that iTunes showed up. And they solved that problem now, right? That that was my real problem was, how do I get music on here? Why do I have to plug it into my computer? And can't you make this easier for me, right? Yeah, I remember that clearly too. It was, it was so true. It was such a good example of them just getting the job done faster and more accurately. And you're right. I remember I had those early MP3 players and you could only hold like – 20 songs or 50 songs, right? And it, it was really hard to even get them on the player. And I remember there was an article about Steve Jobs working with the iTunes team and the iPod 
team. And remember, they also, when they, when they launched iTunes, you could also burn a CD. Remember, this is, you and I are definitely old enough. This is back in the, you know, recordable CD version. And he was having a debate with the team and it was, they, they were making it incredibly complicated for a user to burn a CD. Just like you were saying, it was very complicated to, you know, put these songs on an MP3 player. And he, and the, the engineering team is having this debate and they're going back and forth. And he just stands up and says, here's what we're going to do. A user drags a song to the CD. That's it. That's all they have to do. <laughs> and I love that because when we get into the details of jobs to be done, we always use speed and accuracy as the measures uh, to judge success for your customer because no one wants to get a job done slower and less accurately or have to learn new code or how to reprogram something. And this goes way back. I mean, as you, you kind of mentioned before, Chad, you know, this, this kind of thinking goes way, way back. And Kodak, you may remember the Kodak Brownie. Definitely before our time, but you know, the Kodak Brownie was an enormous success. It was one of the most successful products in history. I think it was for like six decades, like versions of the Kodak Brownie, like dominated, you know, film. And it's because in the early days of film, you know, we've all seen those old movies where someone puts the thing over their head and they've got like a big flash and then they have to go be a chemist to like develop a photo. So the innovation that Kodak came up was one click and we do the rest. So they invented a camera and all you had to do is like, pointed at something and push a button and you take a photo and then you sent the film to them. So they took care of all the like complicated, you know, chemistry to make a film, but that's just all we always say all innovation is going to get to that point where the, to get the job done, you push a button and it's done. Okay. That's really good. So we went from customers who that really is to markets, making sure we're playing in the right market, choose an awesome market that is, is built for growth. Where do we go next? So now that you've got the customer in the job, if you're a product team, you know, that's helpful to say, for example, people want to create a mood with music. Or, you know, if you were be if you were trying to compete with Apple and Google Maps, which would be extremely hard to do, of course, because, you know, they have a hundred percent market share and they're the most successful companies in history. Just knowing that people don't want navigation apps, they want to get to a destination on time. Well, okay, that's great. And you don't want some executive at your company coming to your product team and saying, Hey, help people get to a destination on time. That's not really enough to act on. <laughs> so this is where you get to unmet needs. So l- now that you have a customer, you know, let's use this Apple Google Maps example. You have consumers who are trying to get to destinations on time. And this thinking applies to anything. So it could be cardiovascular surgeons trying to restore every blood or CFOs trying to optimize cash flow. But what what's really interesting about jobs theory is it it breaks down that goal that your customers are trying to achieve into very specific customer needs. So that brings up an important question, which is what is a customer need? And we talk to companies about this all the time because as a product team, as an innovator, your goal, of course, is to satisfy unmet customer needs better than competitors in your market. You know, that I don't think that's a controversial statement <laughs> that innovation and products are should be satisfying unmet customer needs. But then what is a customer need? And it is amazing that companies will agree, yes, our mission is to satisfy unmet needs. And then you ask them, does your team even agree on what a customer need is? How do you define a customer need? And they don't have an agreement. So this is a huge problem for product teams and for innovation in general. And that's where jobs theory can be really useful. So back to our Apple and Google Maps example. So we know the job is to get to a destination on time. So the first thing to do is break down the steps that a customer has to go through to get the job done. And they're really kind of 
six different categories of step. And and this thinking goes back to George Paglia, who was a mathematician, I think in the 40s, who tried to create a method for generalizingly you know, to generalize problem solving. And that's really what you're trying to do is figure out, you know, getting to a destination time is a problem. It's a goal or a problem for your customer. And so how do you figure out what they need to do to solve that problem? Well, there's categories of steps. There's steps that are understanding. So you're trying to understand the problem you're trying to solve. You're planning to solve the problem. You're trying to execute the problem, the solution, uh, and you're assessing how it goes and you revise and then you conclude. And so those categories of steps, I think, are really useful for product teams because now you get an outline of what your customer has to go through to get the job done. So let me give you some concrete examples. So if you're trying to get to a destination on time, and we've all done this, right? We've all been there. Uh, the first thing is you have to understand the departure, you estimate the departure time. That's an understanding step. And then you have to plan the stops. So that's a planning step. And then you actually have to travel to the destination. That's an execution step. And then along the way, if there's traffic or you run into some difficulty, you have to assess if you're going to get there on time. And then if there is traffic, you have to reset the route as needed. And then finally, you have to park the vehicle and walk to the destination. And those are the conclusing steps. So if you start, and those are six steps um, in getting to a destination on time. It turns out there's 16 different steps in getting to a destination. It's a very complicated job. But the reason those job steps are really important is now it helps you identify the customer needs. And this is, I think, where jobs to be done and jobs theory is really, really powerful is that a customer need very simply is some action your customer has to take with some variable in the job. And that's what's really fascinating. And, you know, we have the benefit of doing this over years, and we've studied hundreds and hundreds of jobs in different markets, and they're very similar. So they all have actions and variables. So what does that mean? Well, let's take getting to a destination on time. If you're trying to plan your stops, plan your stops has a whole series of variables, like the optimal sequence to start the stops. You have to know the open times at the stops. You have to know the routes to the stops, you know, et cetera. So those are all variables. And the key, if if you're a product team out there trying to do this, is those variables, just like the job itself, are independent of any solution. They don't relate to any technology or any product or any feature. They're independent of the solutions. So like the job, those variables, those customer needs are going to be stable over time. And then you have to figure out the actions your customer has to take with those variables. So if you have the optimal sequence of stops to plan your stops, you know that they have to determine the optimal sequence. And that's really powerful. When you combine some customer action with a variable in the job, you now have a customer need statement that is not only independent of any solution and stable over time, but also measurable. And so a product team, and you know, Chad, I think you mentioned you were an engineer too. Engineers love this too, because you know they like to measure things. And that's that's very, very measurable. Did we help our customers determine the optimal sequence of stops? How fast was it? How accurate was it? And that's really at 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 its heart the power of jobs to be done. As you were talking about that, this is where I think segments come into play as well, right? So we we're after this market right now, and, and in this example, we define it as people that want help getting from point A to B as they're traveling. But as you start looking at specifically what are our individuals doing for that, maybe that planning part of it, maybe some people have a more complicated route to assess, right? The, you, you have the people that might, I just need to go from point A to B and get that done. You have other people that say, well, I, I have three errands to run along the way. I wouldn't need to do these stops. And that could be a sub-segment for us, right? Uh, that we might target specifically because they have different unmet needs than are represented in other aspects of our market. Yeah, that's a great question. And 
and so true. It is jobs to be done segmentation, I think, is it's just extremely powerful because the way the method works, instead of segmenting based on personas, like we saw before, like are you gonna have two personas, Paul who's older and rural, and Kate who's, you know, younger and urban and has a master's degree, you know, those would be your traditional segmentation profiles. And and those personas actually can lead you astray. Because could those two personas, you know, Paul and Kate, both struggle to get the job done in the exact same way? Right. And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> and it has nothing to do with their demographics or in B2B markets, you know, your industry segment or whatever. It has to do with the nature of the job and why you struggle. So in our getting to a destination on time example, you know, as you mentioned, Chad, I, I agree with you completely. If you looked at the data, and we don't have to cover all this, but there's some quantitative ways to survey customers and ask about their struggle. And we, we use customer effort scores. So you're basically trying to say to get responses from customers, you know, do they think it's a lot of effort to plan their stops and determine the optimal sequence? And if there's a group that says, yes, that's the segment you should target because now they're saying, oh, we really struggle with this planning of stops. Now, there might be a whole other group in the market, a whole other segment that says, I don't struggle at all. I go to the same job every day, take the same route. I pick up my kids at the same time. I go to the same grocery store and you know, I don't have that struggle in planning my stops. But if you're, you know, for example, a traveling salesperson, maybe not during COVID, but you know, normally, and you're going to frequent stops that are unfamiliar and you have to be on time and you've got your busy day or your busy executive, you know, you might be in that segment that really struggles and it has nothing to do with your demographics. It has to do with the way you're trying to get the job done. And that's really, really powerful. We see this all the time and we compare those demographic segments to what we call the needs-based segments. And it really reveals that jobs to be done is a better way to segment customers. Good. So this is a very powerful tool for us. For sake of time, we're going to point them to some other resources here in just a moment, too. But what would you want to wrap up with? Because we're not done with all of jobs to be done, but what kind of are the next big pieces that uh, just wrap us up with? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a few things. One is product road mapping. So at the end of the day, product teams are responsible for building products over time, which means they have to have a roadmap. And that's what I think Jobs to be Done can really help in that road mapping exercise. Because basically what you're doing as a team, you're trying to come up with a bunch of feature ideas and you're trying to prioritize, you know, which ones do we launch in Q2 2021, which one goes into Q4 2025, et cetera. And that road mapping is really the most important thing that teams are doing because it captures everything. Who's the customer? Why are they struggling? Why are you prioritizing these unmet needs? How are you going to beat your competition, et cetera? And history has tons of examples of this. You know, BlackBerry was worth four times what Apple was when the iPhone launched. People forget this because now Apple's, you know, Apple's this $2 trillion company and BlackBerry's, you know, gone essentially. But BlackBerry had a roadmap. <laughs> they just had the wrong roadmap. And Apple Apple clearly had a better one. So that's what Jobs to Done can really help. It helps teams agree on what their should be in their roadmap because it's so customer focused. It's not like Jay's opinion or Chad's opinion and we're having these political debates. It's how can we agree that we're going to get the job done faster and more accurately for customers over time. And so that road mapping exercise, you know, that is where kind of the rubber meets the road for jobs to be done. And it helps mitigate your risk because your company is going to invest a ton of money in that 
that roadmap, you know, whether you're a startup putting a couple million dollars into your roadmap or whether you're a large Fortune 500 spending literally billions of dollars in your roadmap, the goal is to make that investment so that you accelerate your revenue and profitability growth. And that's that's where, you know, in one way you can think about jobs, you know, it's kind of a risk mitigation system for your product roadmap investment to make sure that you're you're on the right path. Excellent. And I mentioned other resources for us because you have some things you can point us to to help help us dive into this more. And, and I want to hear about the, the, the software app that you have as well, right? In some sense, you've you know you're kind of like the Quicken, make, making it easier for people to do their taxes and accounting. You're trying to do that with jobs to be done, right? Yeah, that's right. The first thing I'll point people to is Clay Christensen's book, Competing Against Luck. That's a great way to start. It's very high level, so I don't think you could take that book and you know build a great product. But it's a great foundational book on the theory and why it works. And also, kind of want to and you know honor Clay. I studied with him and unfortunately passed away last year. But you know he made huge contributions to just innovation and thinking and. So I I'd point people to his book, Competing Against Luck, which is also a great title for a book. And then yeah, we do have a lot of resources. So we have a whole course on Jobs to Be Done, so people can take that for free. There's 16 different lessons, and it covers everything from markets to market sizing, customers, segmentation, go-to-market, messaging, you know, competitive analysis, all that stuff. So we encourage that. And we, we love the community of people who are engaged with that because we it is a big community. It's growing. We're trying to help it grow, and we're always trying to contribute to the theory. And we get great feedback and input too from people who are interested in this stuff. So hopefully people will join the community. Yeah. And then our software. So it's interesting. The Like a lot of kind of business thinking, this started kind of in the academic world, you know, and then it, it kind of moved into research and professional services, helping companies do this. And the state of, of Jobsy Done, what we saw a few years ago is it, it creates a lot of data. You get a lot of data about your customers. And, you know, if you're looking at a job, it's got 15, 16 steps. It's got hundreds of needs. If you're doing different segmentation on the quantitative side, you might have 50 to 100 different segment cuts. So on each of the steps and needs, it's it's a lot of data. And so we realized, well, software is really good at helping teams use data and come to an agreement and make decisions. <laughs> so we built the tool to help teams really do this and stay coordinated and stay focused because, you know, teams use PowerPoint and Excel, obviously, you know, there's still, you know, dominant platforms, but we, we kind of saw that teams don't want another 250 page PowerPoint presentation, you know, you know, Chad, could you refer to slide 175 again, you know, and it gets lost in email. So yeah, we want to make it much faster and easier. No surprising. We're trying to build our software using jobs to be done <laughs> to help teams, you know, satisfy unmet customer needs. And, and it's been a really fun journey. You know, we've been lucky to work with great product teams and, you know, product teams are generally filled with really smart people, <laughs> which is makes it enjoyable for us to, to work with, you know, smart people. Where can we find those resources? So you got this free course on jobs to be done. You have. Uh, the software tool people can find out about and the community to engage with. Yeah, great. Everything's at thrive.com, T-H-R-V. So that's thrive without the vowels.com. And so everything's there. Our course, our videos, uh, we have an ebook, we have a cheat sheet. So there's a bunch of resources there that really can help teams, you know, as they get up to speed and start to learn about this stuff. And as listeners know, and you know, since you've been listening to, I appreciate that. We love a good quote around here. Can you tell us what your quote is on innovation and what that one means to you? 
of course, I mentioned the theater level one, which is kind of famous. You know, customers don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. But the other one I love is Phil Schiller from Apple. And people may know Phil Schiller. He's Apple's longtime senior vice president for worldwide product marketing. And Fortune published an article about him in December 2007, 2015. And he said he had a grand unified theory of Apple. So of course, I was very interested in that. Apple is you know, the most successful company ever, and obviously a very, very innovative company. And he said his grand, uh, the- grand unified theory of Apple actually really related to jobs to be done. He said, and it's a long quote, so you can go read it, but he's like, we ask, like, what is the job of the watch? What's the job of the iPhone? What's the job of the iPad, of a notebook, a MacBook, and, and a Mac? And he goes through their whole entire product line, basically using jobs to be done thinking. And I thought that was really interesting because a lot of times it's always really hard to explain Apple's success. You know, they've been counted out so many times throughout their history, and yet they still continue to succeed. And I think that really explains it is that they really focus on the customer's job. Remember, they, they killed their own iPod business and the iPod represented 50% of their revenue at the time. Most companies will not kill their own product if it's generating 50% of their revenue. And yeah, Apple, Apple did that because they realized, Hey, Another product, this portable computer that for some reason we call a phone, is going to be able to get that job done. So, and remember, you may remember, remember even the first, the first version of the iPhone, the music app was called iPod. They just you know, transformed the product into software on the phone. So, yeah, I, I love that quote because, you know, people like studying Apple. Like, why are they so successful? They're continuing. It's incredible that they are a $2 trillion company. I mean, that's just people, people don't even understand how big a trillion dollars is. It's like outside of human comprehension. And yet they continue to grow and they continue to be successful. So I, so I love that quote. That focus on solving customers' problems. Yep. Independent of your product. That's what's, that's, that's what I would leave product teams with advice, which is kind of ironic is don't focus on your product. <laughs> Even though it's in your title that you're a product manager or you're a VP of product. The irony is like, you should be focused on your customer's problem, not your product. Jay, I appreciate all the information. This is an exceptionally valuable tool for product managers and you have additional resources at thrive.com. No vows in that thrv.com. There we can sign up for the free course, be part of the community, and learn about these tools as well. So, Jay, thanks for spending time with us. Thanks, Chad. Love your podcast. Really great. Thank you. Thanks again for listening. This is where product leaders and managers become product masters, getting practical knowledge, influence, and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Find all the written details of our discussion with Jay at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 333. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.